So, uh, I'm sorry, verse 43, here we are. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. He just spent two days in Samaria. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Seems like Jesus is going to intentionally confront his lack of honor. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official, likely a Jewish official, not a Roman soldier, whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Just as an aside here, uh, these five roofed colonnades are not symbolic. This is an actual place testified to by archaeology. They've discovered these uh, five roofed colonnades in Jerusalem. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for your spirit to be here this morning. I feel my own frailty, Lord, my sickness, and uh, pray that you would come by your spirit and make your word a powerful tool. Lord, that where there are hard hearts, that you would uh, break them and soften them. Uh, Where there is pride, that you would strip it away and humble. And also, Lord, where there is despair and discouragement and depression, that you would comfort and encourage. 
Lord, we pray that you would do these things so that we could have faith to see you, to behold you in your glory. Help us to believe. Lord, tend to us. We are so fragile. Do these things by the power of your spirit for your namesake and for your love for this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I want to think about uh, the role of miracles in Jesus' mission. Uh, John calls them signs very carefully. In fact, he insists he only calls them uh, something other than a sign in this passage. But almost every time he talks about miracles, he talks about them as signs. So I want to think about why that is, what John is getting at. You know, in the last few months, we've spent a good bit of time as a church uh, praying for various miraculous healings. Uh, Praying for our babies, praying for our elderly, praying for our not-so-elderly to be healed, uh, praying for the Lord to bring justice and rescue his persecuted church. So when I come to a passage like this, my own desires get stirred up, and I start asking, all right, Lord, uh, these miracles you're doing, I'd like to see those. Where are they now? Where are they now? So I want to spend time thinking about how they fit into Jesus' mission. We're going to look at three things. Signs display the person of Christ. They display the person of Christ. Second, signs are a doorway to follow Christ. They're a doorway. And then third, signs serve his grand design or his ultimate aim. So if you like alliteration, you can call it a design. Now, some of you may have a serious question about the existence and validity of miracles. You know, seriously, we're kind of uh, intellectual types for 21st century. Aren't, aren't these miracle accounts just a result of kind of pre-critical, you know, uh, they'll believe anything you tell them, uh, you know, pre-modern people? Most of us find miracles a little bit hard to believe because uh, they don't conform to the overwhelming amount of experience we've had of normal life. Everything generally follows what we call the laws of nature. So to talk about something that breaks these laws of nature is something that doesn't really make sense to us uh, natively. We say that it just couldn't happen. But of course, that's what philosophers call begging the question. If you know that phrase, it means you assume the answer without doing any work. Uh, what I mean to say is that the question we're trying to answer with miracles is this. Uh, if we're talking about laws of nature, who could ordain such laws? Who could put laws of nature into place? And if there is some sort of cosmic king who would ordain laws of the whole world and cosmos, could he, according to his own design and desire, break them to accomplish some special work? That's what we mean when we're talking about miracles. And this is the question, and to beg it means that we assume the answer without really considering the other options, and then we discount all the alternative beliefs as nonsense. Saying miracles are impossible assumes an answer, but of course it doesn't prove anything. And in fact, I just uh, if you're here this morning and you're skeptical of miracles, let me just suggest to you that assuming the laws of nature to be unalterable uh, claims too much, and it pays for none of it. That is, there's a whole host of assumptions that just really haven't been worked out yet. In particular, uh, to assume that the laws of nature are unalterable assumes that your experience of the world is the final authority of how things really are. You limit reality to your own horizon of experience. Or uh, you can assume that the eyewitness accounts of miracles could not be credible just because. Or finally, uh, you have to assume that there is even that even if there is a God, 
he has to be fairly docile and obedient to these laws of nature, because if he gets out of line, he might be scolded by these magnificent laws of nature. Let me just say, those assumptions, being what they are, are fairly questionable. So rather than going on at length, let me just encourage you, if you are one such person who finds these highly skeptical, to just think about the way miracles function for Jesus, what he's doing with them. I'll just say they're very different from what you might assume. So first, signs display the person of Christ. John works very hard to pick particular signs to talk about. In fact, um, commentators call the first half of John's gospel the book of signs, and the second half the book of the cross. And if you read through the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll hear this kind of refrain, and he did many other signs in that place, or healed many other people. People brought him sick people from all over and healed them. And those accounts are kind of this like full, exhaustive account of all the things that Jesus did. But John is very selective in what he includes. He only includes about seven, or maybe eight, depending on how you count them, seven signs to give us a particular lens to help us understand who Jesus really is, to reveal to us the nature of Jesus. Calling it a sign means that this physical event is referring to a reality that's beyond our perception. Kind of like a traffic sign refers to something that you're not yet aware of, but that you're coming to. It's referring to a reality beyond your horizon so these signs are referring to realities beyond what we ourselves are aware of, and they're actually giving a foretaste of that reality. So we have to ask the question, first of all, what do these signs teach us about Jesus? And we have a couple things. First, Jesus has the power of creation itself. Power of creation itself. Think about the official, what the official asks from Jesus. Look at verses 47 and 49. He asks Jesus to come down to see his sick son. Come down and heal my son, verse 50. I'm sorry, 49. Come down before my child dies. It's almost as if uh, this official has likely heard that Jesus is a miracle worker and generally assumes that for Jesus' juju to work, he kind of has to be in the room, right? There's this proximity kind of ratio thing going on, and Jesus has to be there. But Jesus doesn't do that at all. What does Jesus do? Verse 50, he speaks. That's it. Jesus speaks a word, a promise, and leaves it. He doesn't grind up any herbs. He doesn't whisper an incantation. He doesn't throw anything into a fire and get the smoke going. He doesn't burn some powder or make some salve. He doesn't even go there. He speaks and the boy is healed. In fact, if you look at 52 and 53 of this chapter, the father goes and asks, when did the boy recover? And it turns out the boy recovered the hour Jesus spoke. It's not simply that Jesus promised he would get better, hey, things will turn around, but the moment Jesus speaks, life goes back into the boy. It's the same power, in fact, that spoke creation itself into existence. And God said, let there be light. And what? It was so. 
There's no inner mechanism that's explaining this. There's no greater power on which Jesus is depending and calling down. He is himself the power. This is what, if you read the books of Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia, this is what the creatures of Narnia called the deep magic. The deeper magic that doesn't require anything else and doesn't depend on anything else. It's the power that has made all things be. So this is what we mean when we speak about a cosmic king who brings about miracles and overthrows the laws of nature. He simply speaks because he has spoken all things into existence already. The other thing we see about Jesus in his signs is that they are recreative. They have the power of creation and they recreate because they work against the curse of death and its effects in the world. Right? Sickness, this illness of the boy, the brokenness, the paralyzed man, disease, defects are all a result of sin entering into the world. I don't mean personal sin has resulted in personal sickness. I'm, I'm sick right now, you can probably tell. It's not because there was some sin in my life this last week. There was sin in my life this last week, but that's not the reason I'm sick today. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Proof. What I mean to say is that sin is like a cancer that's come into the world, that's invaded the kingdom of Christ, and is perverting and twisting everything into a rebellion so that when you go to it, it doesn't work the way it should. It's broken. It tends towards destruction and corruption and death. And Jesus, the cosmic king, comes to deal with that cancer. It's tempting to treat Jesus as if he was only interested in being a moral teacher or a great example or someone who's really inspirational and encourages the weary and the depressed and amen, he does those things. But more than anything else, what Jesus is showing us is that he is the king who has come to defeat death and the grasp death has on his people and on his world. He comes and heals so that we can see that he is aiming at nothing less than total restoration. Third thing we see about these signs is that they are not spectacles. They're not spectacles. In fact, they're done in very discreet, personal, and private ways. Think about the paralyzed man. Does he know who healed him? He has no idea. Jesus just shows up, asks him if he wants to be healed, says so, walks away. The official whose son was healed, what was public was the official asking Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus simply saying, go, your son will live. But who saw the son being healed? None of the disciples. Simply the man and his servants, his household. These are not spectacles to gain acclaim. He is not like Benny Hinn, okay, calling people up on stage who have miraculously been healed. No, Jesus is healing simply out of compassion for the person, even for people who don't even get it. Jesus is overwhelmed with compassion, and he's after, it turns out, not a claim, but something much bigger than that. And this is our second point. The signs are a doorway to follow Christ. And we see this in Jesus' rebuke to the official in verse 48. He says to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official uh, was clearly ignorant of who Jesus was in his entirety, and that's not to blame. We're early on in the gospel. 
But it's a common problem that Jesus runs into. In fact, if you keep reading throughout the gospel, what happens to Jesus is people keep coming to him and asking for signs. What sign do you have to show us what you're saying? What sign do you have to prove that you are such and such? When, of course, Jesus has been doing signs all along, the problem is not that they're asking for signs, but that the people are fascinated with the miracle, the sign, and yet unwilling to listen to the words of the teacher, unwilling to submit to the authority, unwilling to grapple with the person who is doing the signs because the signs point to him. Even so, if I said verse 48 to any one of you when your son was dying, less than tactful, we'd say, right? Jesus, you know, his son is dying. Maybe you don't want to rebuke him when his son's on his deathbed. You know, could you just do the thing for him, you know? Get it over with. But Jesus is actually after something very in particular. He wants to do a few things in this official's life. First off, he wants to expose that this official doesn't really know Jesus at all and that what he's coming to him out, uh, with is desperation rather than knowing Jesus. He's hopeful that Jesus can help him, but not particularly interested in Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus is not offended with this desperation. He doesn't rebuke the man for caring for his son. In fact, he willingly heals the son. His compassion knows no end, but his compassion is given on his terms. He will not let his compassion be made into a spectacle. So he exposes this man's ignorance of Jesus, but it's also an invitation. This rebuke is an invitation to true belief in Jesus' word. In fact, Jesus' word is all that he gives him. The man asks him to come down, and Jesus simply says, Go, your son will live. In effect, he's forcing this man to ask himself, Is Jesus' word enough? And in order to answer that question, question, we have to ask, Who is Jesus that I can actually begin to trust his word? And so he's inviting this man to begin to grapple with the things that Jesus is saying about himself, that he is the Son of God. He's calling him to trust in Jesus himself. The third thing, though, is that this rebuke is also a warning. It's a warning because it's entirely possible to profit, to have a, a miracle, to receive a miracle in a life, or to even witness one take place, and yet not actually profit from it. Not actually profit from it. Uh, you can think of the paralytic man uh, who after is healed is questioned by the Jewish authorities and he seems very eager to make sure that he's not in trouble. And so he goes, once he finds out Jesus is the one who heals him, make sure to go back and tell the Jewish officials, hey, listen, it was, wasn't me breaking the Sabbath. It was that guy. In fact, I found out it's Jesus. So take all your animosity and put it on him. It seems as if this paralytic's loyalties were fairly untouched. He doesn't gain any fondness or affection for Jesus himself. The problem with signs and wonders is that it's possible to receive them or witness them and yet have our fundamental loyalties, our view of life, our hunger for control, untouched, unchanged. In fact, uh, it's easy and we like to ask God to intervene in our life in ways that really would actually leave our identity our innermost pain and shame entirely untouched. It's easier to pray for God to help us find the right house or uh, the right job or the right spouse than it is for 
us to ask him to come and expose the sin that's living in us. You can think, if you know the Old Testament well, Hezekiah, one of the last kings of Judah, he's on his deathbed and he prays for the Lord to heal him, and the Lord does. And yet, he's not humbled because of God's kindness to him. In fact, he grows proud. He doesn't profit from his healing, but he grows arrogant and proud, and in fact, ends up exposing Jerusalem to foreign invasion. He failed to profit from his own miracles. So signs are meant to draw us in. They are the doorway through which we are to walk and to begin to follow Christ himself. And that is because signs are not simply meant to impress us. They are meant to give us a tangible taste of his kingdom. Because Jesus himself is the person pointed to by the sign. Jesus himself is the miracle. I have a little quote for you from a, a Dutch guy we like to read. Herman Ritterboss, inside your bulletin. Hermie, as his friends called him. I don't know that. <laughs> this is what he says. Jesus is more than the miracles he performs, more than the bread he distributes, and more than the child he restores to its father. He is himself the miracle from above. It is therefore... Also himself, he imparts in his miracles the bread of life, the resurrection and the life, the light of the world. The faith he demands is therefore more than faith in his power to do miracles. It is faith in him as the gift of God come down from heaven. So we have to stop here and ask, though, what about us? What about us? What about when you have been praying for some particular area in your life and it seems as if the Lord is just continually saying no? What if you were the guy next to the paralytic? You remember the pool of Bethesda, there's piles and piles of blind and lame and paralyzed and Jesus heals one. One guy. So what are you supposed to do if you watch Jesus heal old Frankie and not you? I just I want to say briefly, we're called to three things. First, we're called to mourn and to grieve. Now, I know that's not an attractive answer. But the reality is, is that we have a built-in resistance to going into those hard places. But mourning and grieving is simply naming evil as evil. It's calling those things out and saying, God, I hate these things. And simply being sad before the Lord is actually part of your spiritual life. It's part of your healthy spiritual practice with Jesus. And the reality is, is that at that point when we want to resist most, grief and mourning is the very place where the Lord intends to meet us. It's the very place the Lord intends to meet us. In fact, the Lord welcomes our mourning and our grieving because he is present with us in a special way. The other thing is that we are called to wait on the Lord, to call out to him, to ask for him to intervene, and yet simply to cling to his word. I mean, think of this official walking back home. Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. He has about 20 miles between Cana and Capernaum to walk and to think 
And in fact, he has to camp out for one night and then keep moving. And he comes back to his officials. He's probably thinking, well, what if Jesus just says this and nothing happened? Is people going to be angry with me? I didn't bring him with me. He's simply stuck waiting and asking, all right, is the Lord going to be true to his word? The encouragement is that the Lord is always true to his word. But what I want to encourage you with here this morning is that God's people are no strangers to waiting. We are no strangers to waiting. This is part and parcel of our life. We can do these things, however. Our encouragement in these things is what we read in our call to worship this morning. John 1:14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Because Jesus did not simply come to defeat death, he also came to dwell among us. God with us. We often feel that the Lord's decision not to heal us or our loved one is a sign that he's left, up, left us, but it's actually the opposite. Right? It's, it's actually that in that moment, the Lord intends to meet us. The Lord is preparing us to meet him finally and to finally come and learn about who he is in a particular way because he loves to dwell with the contrite and the lowly. In fact, Romans 8 says that while we suffer and groan in our bodies, this is what Paul says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't know what to pray. We're so overwhelmed with sadness and grief that I have no idea how to pray. And yet what Paul says is that if you are in Christ, his spirit is in your body, in your mind, searching out those dark caverns and in fact praying for you. The God the Spirit praying through God the Son to God the Father that you would be comforted, that he would come and meet you, that he would care for you and provide for you. This is triune affection. And triune attention. God himself knows and sees. I said there was three things we're supposed to do. Here's the third. Being the presence of Christ to one another in those dark moments. The Bible calls this visitation. Visiting. You know, this is what Jesus commends his people for the last judgment. He says uh, in Matthew 25... Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. It's a fairly simple list. In fact, most of it has to do with simply offering what's on hand, right? You just welcome people in. And I have some food. Here, eat. You're hungry? Great. You need clothes? Here, great. Simply being present and offering yourself is actually what Jesus is driving at here. He does not say, I was in prison and you began a protest campaign to free me. He says, I was in prison and you came to me. We struggle with visiting people in hard places. Right? You go to find your friend in the hospital and they're sick and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't fix it. 
your friend is struggling to pay the bills and you yourself are struggling to pay the bills and you can't fix it right then and there. You go to be with someone who has just lost a spouse or a child and it's overwhelming because you don't know what to do. You don't know how to help them feel better. Don't feel like you're accomplishing much. Visitation feels so useless because you feel so powerless. But in fact, that's the point. That's the point of visitation. That power alone belongs to the Lord. So my visiting someone in the midst of their grief is not me accomplishing something. It's simply being the presence of Christ with them and testifying to them with my body, with my presence, that God sees, that he knows, that he cares, and that he is with them. And how could they know that? Because one of his people just showed up. Now, obviously, we can do things. We can bring food. We can bring psalms. We can hang out with them. But this is the challenge, is embracing our powerlessness and simply entering into our brothers and sisters' powerlessness and waiting with them and calling on the Lord with them because power belongs to the Lord and not to me and not to them. But it's in the waiting, it's in the embracing of our powerlessness, the visitation that we are finally open to the real transformation, the real work the Lord is after in our lives. Because here's what happens. We begin to finally stop thinking we're quite so powerful, that we can manage our lives, that we're in control of things, then we're able to see God's power, his grasp of all things, and finally rest in his promise that he sees our suffering, that he cares for us, that he is with us and in us, and that he is making all things new in Christ. And this is our last point. Signs serve, as, serve Jesus' ultimate design, his ultimate aim. They are what he is driving towards, in a word, making all things new, salvation. Let me just tell you how I figured this out, okay? Here's my logic here. His signs are selective, right? He goes to the pool of Bethesda, heals one guy. No doubt there are other children on their sick beds, on their deathbeds in Galilee. He heals one of them. Also, signs are temporary. Each of these healings that Jesus does are temporary. They're a patch job. They're delaying death. Think about this. The paralytic man who can now walk will still die someday. That sick boy who was about to die will again die someday. Lazarus himself, dead in the tomb for three or four days, that Jesus rise, raises from the dead and says, I am the resurrection of life. Lazarus himself dies again. So what in the world is Jesus up to with these signs? I want to say this, signs are not the point, but serve the point. They're part of the package of what God's doing, which, as an aside, should mean that we should feel more than free to ask God to come and intervene and come heal, come be present. We pray this all the time. We've been praying this for our people. There's no embarrassment about this. Jesus is not offended that these people need healing or are asking him for things. But it does mean that they are only part of the whole package that Jesus is driving for something much bigger. He has much bigger fish to fry. In particular, he is after the two-sided evil coin of sin and death. He is after the gaping wound and not simply treating it with a band-aid. He wants to defeat and eradicate death and make all things new. This is his mission. This is what he's after. 
Not only going to do those things, but actually beginning them now here today. Now, some of this feels cheap. When I say, hey, listen, uh, Jesus may decide not to heal you in the way that you really need. And here's the reason why. Because he's driving at the deeper sin in your life that he's trying to eradicate and unroot. That just feels cheap. Really? Jesus Jesus is not going to help me? Because he wants to deal with my sin? Well, part of the problem here is that we don't see how far-reaching sin is. And because of that, we don't also see how far-reaching God's redeeming work is. We tend to think of God treating sin as kind of like a side perk to having him around. Right? Uh, He helped me with my sin. I'm nicer now. I can hold down a job for longer. I don't fight as much with my wife or my kids. We get along better. My kids are seeming to do better too, you know? It's great. God's really helpful. God's this kind of ancient, old school style self-help course. This makes sense to us because our sinful natures that are just living us, they, they train us to think that God is here to help us manage our lives. Right? We envision ourselves to be the great captain of a large ship and in this esteemed place, we are in this harbor, and we have this little tugboat that helps us around navigate the intricate parts of the harbor. And God's like this tugboat. And he's very helpful. No, I really appreciate his, the work and the things he does, because I'm a big, clumsy boat, and, you know, I can make a few mistakes here and there, and where would I be without him? He helps me get the things I need from the harbor. He's just altogether great guy. We like to feel like we are the captain of our boat as long as things are in control, and the water is nice and calm. But what escapes our notice is that the Lord is helping us, certainly, to prepare us for the much scarier journey ahead, the much deeper, troubled waters outside the harbor. The gospel has a very different, different picture of what our life is like in Jesus. This is what Jesus says in John 12. Whoever loves his life... My life, it's for me, I'm going to control it, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Jesus tells us that he is not here to offer us help with our lives. Jesus tells us that he has a total life replacement plan. He is interested in upending your life so that you can finally have true life. Here's the way it works. Jesus comes to you and cares for you, and in response, you give him everything you have. All your control, all your power, all your comfort, all your security, all your dignity, all of these things that we thought were going to bring us lasting joy in life, which don't. And he gives you everything he has. All his comfort. All his control to watch over you and direct you. The king of the universe caring for every intricate detail of your life. Providing for all of your needs. Not a hair will fall from your head without him knowing it. All his affection. All the affection of the father given to the son is now given to you. All his mercy for your sin. His grace abounds even as far as your sin does and all his righteousness and honor so that when you stand before the Lord, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He honors you. He gives you his everlasting life, which cannot be snuffed out. It's not a patch job. 
We miss this because we think of our sin like a list of taboos and things we should avoid, behaviors to control, things not to say, when in fact it's much more like an intricate network of weeds infesting your backyard. Look at verse 14 in chapter 5. Jesus says to this man, Look, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is not saying that this sin causes man's paralyzation. He's saying that for this man to fall into sin would be much worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. What you have to see is that sin is our great enemy. It's the death that diseases everything. You know, uh, I've been reading some articles on this the last week. Researchers have only recently become aware of the impact of childhood trauma, okay, growing up in highly dysfunctional, sinful homes, that there's a high correlation, a good indicator, that if you have a number of these adverse things in your environment as a kid, that you will likely contract some sort of cardiac disease or autoimmune disorder. In fact, it's almost uh, it's a very high correlation. And that, uh, in fact, sin is not simply some sort of spiritual slice of the world that we kind of, you know, feel sentimental about and write Hallmark cards about. But in fact, it is bodily. It's mental. It's emotional. It's our whole person. Because it shapes your body because it shapes your stress levels. It affects the amount of uh, cortisol released. And that affects the way your immune system reacts. That affects your cells. In fact, sin affects not only your body, but also how you carry it out into the world. It touches all of your relationships. Sin is the root cause of the trauma, the rape, the war, the violence that many of you have witnessed and even experienced in your own bodies. Sin is the root cause of the neglect the plastic and distant parenting you may have received, or the lies that you were taught to believe. Sin is not just something that we do, it is that. It's also something that happens to us, that shapes us, that characterizes us. What I'm trying to say is that if sin is this far-reaching and this intricate, that the Lord is after this big fish. He is after this great evil. And his main goal in your life is holiness and not primarily your comfort. I didn't say he's not for your comfort. In fact, he names himself the comforter. What I'm saying is that he is primarily after your holiness. He is working at digging up the roots of sin, unbelief, and pride in every area of your life. Do you believe this? Are you willing to follow the Lord into those hard places? This is the doorway of the signs that the Lord is leading you to because here is the great miracle. Because once you begin to face not only your sin and the things that just come out of you and live in you, but you also begin to admit the things that have been done to you, the wounds that you wear and the ways you've been sinned against, and you begin to feel yourself dead. The very moment that you think all hope is lost, that's the moment. That's the point at which Jesus and his spirit enters in and begins to push his new life into you so that all of a sudden, wow, I don't feel the way I used to. I don't love the things that I used to. I'm actually beginning to enjoy Jesus. I'm actually beginning to like his people. I actually like being at church now. I never thought that would happen. 
The very moment when you feel yourself dead is the moment when the Lord works his new and eternal life into you. And that is because Jesus will not settle for simply delaying your death. He is after much more than that. He is the cosmic king and he has conquered death. And so he not only promises us life after death, but even here and now. This is John 5. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed, has passed already from death to life. Jesus is the miracle because if you are in him, you have his life now. Now you have passed from death to life. And this means that if he is in you, if he is abiding in you, he is currently actively peeling back and pushing out the effects of death in your body, in your relationships, in your family, and implanting his eternal life to take over more and more of your soul, more and more of your body. He saves you not simply from your sins. He abides in you with his own spirit. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are hungry. Lord, we are hungry for your righteousness, for your spirit to come and comfort us. You tell us, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be comforted, for they will see God. Lord, give us faith to see you working in us. Lord, give us faith to follow you out into the troubled waters and find that we need you to take charge of our lives. Lord, help us to cling to the life that you give. Would you give us faith to see your love to us, to receive your kindness, and to trust our lives into your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.